1: plushcare.com slash weight loss One last question I think and that's yeah, yeah, what course. I wanted to say you tell me how this film ends what's Chris Burns' legacy? <laughs> that's trivial as possible Yes you know, of course, not like the, course The bridge you built across Well the fucking... <laughs> you
0: know like I'd like it to be for people to remember me as again a trite statement but as a nice person you know
1: yeah
0: and that would uh that would be significantly important to me um just being sound <laughs> in general you know but um that would be uh, quite important to me you know the rest is history
2: You just heard a clip from the amazing documentary called "Git Was Here. And we had the chance to see this amazing movie and do our first ever live episode of Grief Encounters in the Sugar Club here in Dublin. So the movie is all about Chris Byrne and is made by his friend Lorcan Fox. It's about his life and it is so clear when you see this movie how much he is loved by the people in his life. I think because he was so larger than life because it's such a
3: presence. And for me, what touched me was to see his big group of male friends speak so openly and honestly about how much he meant to them Mm. and to see very visibly how much they miss him Mm. because often you don't see that um, as we discuss in the podcast and I don't think that's been very gender specific or very general or it doesn't mean to be a sweeping statement but usually it's not as forthcoming it was very touching I mean when we watched the movie and then got up to do the podcast I felt a little bit sort of nervous that we do it justice and do Chris justice
2: yeah and you think when you see Chris in the film he's got this smile that like I don't think I'll ever forget because in every single scene he has this big beautiful smile Um, he was very funny he was adventurous um, he absolutely loved and adored his wife and his son Um, he didn't get to 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 see his son grow up, which is something that we talk about, um, which is a very sad, sad um, part of his story. But you could feel in the room all his family and friends who loved him so greatly. There was just an energy in the Mm. room um, about how much he meant to them. Even though the documentary does look at death and grief, it's also really a lot about life and what life is all about, especially when it's cut short. And he seemed to live his life to the fullest.
3: Mm, And I think it's uh, Lorcan Fox, the who made the documentary, who was his friend. I think he came about it in a very nice way in that He wanted to show his friend off the best he could, but also from the same point of view, the sort of because he was a messer (laughs) and the his personality but the various different pockets like you saw him on his wedding day how he took it actually very seriously yeah of course um, yeah. his religious devotion yeah. uh, his devotion to his wife and his son as he said but also to his family and to his friends and it, it it's just it's really moving whether you knew him or not mm. Um, it's just it's incredibly moving documentary that I think makes you want to go home and film every day of your <laughs>
2: life <laughs> all the time so people have it. We sat down with Lorcan and Christopher's wife, Caroline Byrne. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for having us. It feels wonderful to be able to do this with you guys. We should start off by saying that each week we record this podcast and there's only usually one other person in the room. So this is the first time for us to have an audience. Very small room. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we feel really honoured um, that we got to, to watch the film with you and to have this chat. I guess our first question, which we talked about, is, you know, we didn't know Christopher. And you guys refer to him as Chris and Christopher and Git. What should we refer to him as? What do you think? <laughs> Anything? Another name.
1: <laughs> um... Well, I can answer that and then pass it over to Caroline. I can start it off. So, I I think you could actually break up his life into different eras. You know, so he was like, yeah, Gi-, our Gitzer, I believe, is Johnny's phrase of choice. Yeah, Gitzer, Gitzer, B, Gitzer. Uh, and then once we sort of calmed down, say in our twenties, and sort of got jobs, and <laughs> I don't know, just just can't, just matured. I think then definitely you're looking at more of a Chris. Mm. And then I don't know when he might have been called Christopher ever. That'd probably be a question for Jody. Did they ever call him like Christopher? Come in. I don't know. But he went from Git to Chris around twenty four or something, maybe. I don't know.
4: I always knew Chris as Chris, um, until I met his friends and they called him Git. But I suppose Jody was probably the only one that I heard call him Christopher. Mm. Um and it wasn't because he was in trouble, but it was I think he was just <laughs> Yeah, the, he, knew, he was always known as Christopher. I know we did the the premiere in, in Glore a couple of weeks ago, and I did an interview for the local paper, and it was Git was here, and they asked me why it was Git. They didn't understand the whole reasoning behind um, the nickname Git, so I had to explain that, but uh, I suppose the only reason I knew that was I spent so long in Dublin and understood, I think his aunt Catherine is up there, and her nickname as well is Git. <laughs> <laughs> That's She's a family patron, <laughs> oh, I'm not too sure.
3: Maybe it's a family trait. Yeah. It's lovely to put, for anyone who walks down the south wall uh, quite a bit, down to the lighthouse, it's lovely to put the mural in context. What's it like, though, watching the documentary and seeing get come to life again and seeing his personality, particularly previous to when he got sick?
4: I was mentioning it to you there before the interview, Um It took me a long time to remember the healthy Chris, um, especially throughout his period of being unwell, um, and what the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and the treatment did to him, what the surgery did to him. So I suppose it's only in the last six months I've started to remember the Chris that I, as I said in the documentary, the Chris that I fell in love with. So... I'd kind of eliminated the sick Chris from my head until I saw the documentary last Tuesday week and I remember I mentioned it to Lorcan. Um, it's quite difficult. I suppose towards the very end there you saw photographs of Chris Holden, his nephew, Josh, who's his sister's baby boy. And I'd forgotten that, Chris. And it's Christmas 2015, Chris came to Clare. Um, it was his last Christmas. Um, I remember looking at him that Christmas and going, Jesus, this fella's not going anywhere anytime mm. soon. Um, and he passed away three months later. But that's how much I was in denial with mm. his illness and his sickness. Even though Jodie and I had met his oncologist probably two weeks before Christmas and told us that there was a limited amount of time left. But I think we were just in denial. We were just constantly hoping. Mm. Living in hope that so you sort
3: of need to keep moving yeah. forward when somebody so close to you is that sick. Is that yeah. sort of you you almost
4: just can't give up. Yeah. yeah. And that Christmas passed and I remember we were due to go to Rings End for New Year's Day for dinner down to Chris's parents' house, Jodie and And Chris had a fall on New Year's morning and I remember having to get a neighbour of ours in Lucan to to come and assist. Um, um but Jodie Nidell with the help of um Jimmy and Eileen, they um, brought the whole dinner out on New Year's evening. Um, we were sitting around the table that evening, and uh, Chris announced that evening that he wasn't going having any more treatment. So he said that he felt that the treatment wasn't working, and he was going to discontinue it. Um, I suppose at that stage, he realised that it wasn't doing any more for him. Um, and he realised he was probably looking at end of life as well. It was probably hard, so hard for, for us to swallow as his partner and his wife and his parents, even though we had been told probably three weeks previous to that that the treatment wasn't going to do anything more for him other than help his mind. Um, but I suppose Chris was at the realisation at that stage that um, his time was probably coming quicker than, than the rest of us had expected.
2: And how did you guys spend that time then, after you kind of knew that it was getting closer and that he wasn't going to have any treatment? I mean, um, I've I've spent a lot of time in Harold's Cross. My dad died there 10 years ago, and I think it is kind of a special place, although a very difficult place to be. I mean, were the people able to visit? Was the room full? Were you guys able to spend time together?
4: The hospice was never really on the cards. We had um, palliative care come into the house, and um, initially... We wanted Chris at home, um, and our plan was to set up a room downstairs. Palliative care were fantastic, and we were able to facilitate that. But towards the end, the last 10 days, Chris's pain um, got stronger and stronger, and we weren't able to control it at home. Um, So the decision was made then to bring him to the hospice again with the idea of bringing him home for his final days. Um, But when we met the um, palliative care team in the hospice, They couldn't believe, actually, that he was still alive in in the pain that he was and um, that the the cancer had progressed so far. Um, So they found it difficult themselves to control the pain with the pumps and so on and so forth. And to have a nurse 24-7 to care for him, we wouldn't have been able to have that care at home. But the staff in Harold's Cross Hospice were just out of this world. I couldn't commend them enough for what they did. Um, They were there... 24-7, 24/7 they provided facilities for us to stay 24/7 we we, we were be able to we were able to be at Chris's bedside for the whole 10 days that we were there which made a huge difference to us than having to come and go and not knowing when the time was going to come but knowing that it was near um Chris was conscious probably till 3 days before he passed away um and once he fell into consciousness then we were still able to sit by his bedside um, the care there is fantastic, and they prepare you for almost every hour, and they, they know before the patient goes, what when they're going to go or how they're going to go.
3: Could we talk a little bit about our attitude to grief in general in this country? Because obviously you touched on that in the documentary. There seems to be a thing that we're very good at doing funerals, and we're very good at doing the drinks that come after the funerals. And then not very good after that when it comes to talking about the person, mentioning their name, bringing them up in conversations. Do you think we need to do a bit better?
1: We, we did set out with a, a, a question. Like, genuinely, we were like, well, let's find out. And after about two interviews, it, it became apparent. And I think any of my crew who were there those days will see it. Like, we kind of had these cringe questions where, like, what makes a good death? <laughs> and like after like the second one, we we're like, this is a stupid question, yeah. like you know. And then we we're like, what makes a good life more? So, in terms of the grief thing, uh, the first interview we did was with the grave actually, which, which are those guys are brilliant. Like those guys had it going on, and he would have informed us a lot, I think. So he said, look, no one tells you grief is a bugger and all that, yeah. and it was definitely true. And everyone we interviewed after that, he. would we're kind of lucky he set us on the right path definitely
2: and he said about being embarrassed that really struck me how yeah. people are really embarrassed to be grieving no. because they've lost someone who's like an integral part of who they are and their entire life and they're gone and they still feel embarrassed two years later to say i know i really miss them and i'm having a hard time with it um i thought that was really important because em- embarrassment and shame or and grief is really prevalent but we just are too scared to, to say it
1: yeah, he definitely re refra- like we're sort of lucky definitely, he definitely reframed it, as he said, mm. good at the pageantry, not so good with the processing years later, or like, as he said, there's no obvious timeline, oh, well, about six months is enough when someone dies, like, or two years, or five, like, there isn't really uh, a blueprint for that, and that's def- definitely what we learned, and a lot, you know, the mental health thing is a big thing the last year is mental yeah. health and that's not really our expertise here, but I can see why I think it still needs to be pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, talk, 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 etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and yeah. you
3: talked to Karen who we've talked to ourselves, who's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it does seem to be a more male thing with grief that I think sometimes that these guys struggle more.
1: I, I think it's very difficult to generalise in this no, day and no, age no. about identity politics, but <laughs> absolutely, like it's, it's 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 blokes, man. It, it's male. It's it's yeah. young men, yeah. and it, and that's why we had to go and do Karen. In, in my opinion, we had to. People were like, "This is a bit random. Why are we going to the lady?" And I was like, "We have to talk about suicide. Mm. For me, this is the this is the big big topic." Mm. And I know it's not necessarily to do with Chris, but then. It makes sense because it's like we're it all so, so sad we lost him. And then you're like, well, why are two, why are two guys taking their own lives, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, th- I thought it was very relevant personally, but I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, no, it struck me because, um, as we were talking earlier, I lost my own husband 18 months ago. And it's interesting to see how, I might be generalising, but girls will always come around, they'll always talk, they'll always listen, they'll talk about the person. Sure. But guys might hold back. And sure. well, not black and white, but we,
1: generally, no, no, but as a generalization, 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Chris, I said this to you, Lorcan, he's just incredible to, to see the smile. It's just actually quite overwhelming. In every shot, he's got this massive smile. And he's just, like, kind of infectious, infectious yeah. And really someone that I'm so glad I got to see into a little bit into his life. When you were going through the footage and putting this together, when did that process start? Like, when did you decide... Or Obviously, you had a lot of video of him because he, le- he seemed like somebody who was, you know, really enjoyed being in front of the camera and having fun with you guys and doing these things. <laughs> but when did you know that this was maybe something you wanted to do more with?
1: I don't know, yeah. So everyone has uh, camera phones and stuff now, obviously. So some of that footage is from... Uh, is actually from the 90s, would you believe? Like, literally. So we've always had cameras... And we're doing fun stuff and sort of jackass stuff if you want. So we have a strange situation where you have this ridiculous amount of footage. We have loads more footage, like, but we're always just filming. We'd, some of the videos, and we'd go to parties and just be filming each other yeah. being funny. And there's all these beautiful women just sitting around. Like this, just going, and we're like, yeah, look at this, Fraser, yeah, like, trying to be funny. It's, it's really quite odd, like, yeah. but, uh, we were always about the, the next laugh. Can I make you laugh? Greg, look at this. Greg, look at this. My God, like, who's who's the funniest? Like, that's all that mattered. Mm. And just genuinely footage of these girls just sitting there. <laughs> so, I don't know, yeah. I, uh, that still yeah.
4: hasn't changed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: had all the... <laughs> we had all... <laughs> yeah, parties and all, yeah! We, we had all this footage, and I'd done a lot of sort of very corporate work and a lot of propaganda work which I don't, I don't put myself out for future opportunities but I work for a lot of big states around the world and big brands <laughs> and after that was done I was like I want to do something real like I want to do something real like grainy so mm-hmm. yeah so yeah we we're always like we'll do something we interviewed Chris in about four years ago now Caroline was trying to tell me the date it was
4: yeah, I think it was in November November before he passed away
1: sure yeah. So we, we always had it. And then I was working away. I was very busy. And Carolyn says, "Well, are you doing with that footage? I was like, oh, it'll, yeah. it'll be coming soon. Um, and we just kind of went from there. I mean, we filmed it. There was a chance he could still survive. So it wasn't like, this is last chance saloon. Mm. It was also kind of like, he could survive. And this could be like a positive tale. So it was just steps along the way. Let's interview, Guy. he wants to be into it. Okay, fine, let's interview him. We have all the footage. And then it just kind of went from there.
3: There's a lot of humour in this room tonight, you know, on the, on the the in the documentary. There's a lot of really funny moments. He's obviously a really funny guy.
1: It's hard to get the balance of things mm. we think are funny and maybe everyone in this room I think are funny and then everyone in Ireland and da-da-da. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the moments are great and we purposely put very serious moments followed by ridiculous moments of just, like, messing and wrestling. So, yeah, we mm. definitely tried to go, do you know what? Nobody wants to see 55 minutes of us all just sat around mm-hmm. <laughs> crying, going, oh, I can't believe kids are gone. Like, that doesn't make very interesting. It was
3: part of the grieving process for yeah. you as it Just made, It comes naturally, it come yeah, come naturally, yeah.
1: It just <laughs> came either. natural, I don't know. But maybe we push it too much sometimes. But we just, yeah, as I said, it was always about humour helps. Maybe it's deflective, I don't know. Like, I'll just always make a joke. Or maybe I'm not dealing with my own issues. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's it was essential for Chris, Chris took on a lot of other people's problems I think is, which is a hard thing to capture in this film yeah. but people would always get, would go someone's after come up to me at this party and tell me this really serious thing happened that someone's died to. and people just felt they could unload onto him which is very hard to show to, to depict that but as Johnny, all our close friends, his family will know, people just felt like going here I just wanted to tell you this and oh Jesus my life and he'd come up and oh God, this person has just told me this. For some reason, I don't know. As you said, his personality that just
2: Drew people gave away. off something oh, that yeah.
1: you could just go, here's all my issues right now. And they go, <laughs> yeah. it's bizarre. Like,
2: bizarre. <laughs> Did he find it hard to, to kind of... There,
1: there's a clip there and it, we just use his face and he's just smiling, looking around like that. But someone at the party, and this isn't funny, I'm going to now do the switcheroo, had said to him, we, You know, she was, like, assaulted by someone. Like, she was sexually assaulted at a party a, a week before. And she just told him. And we were just filming randomly. And he was just, like, and, and didn't know what yeah. to say. So, yeah, that stuff like that happened all the time. And this is pre-Me Too stuff. But it was, like, pretty dark what he was told. Like No one else was getting told this at the party. Just get. Me, all the lads having a great time. We were, like, oblivious. I don't know. There was something about his... Uh, the vibe he gave off. I, I don't know what it is.
2: He seems really brave um, in general, just, you know, confident, and but brave to um, have that conversation with you when you guys sit down and you have the conversation about what might happen and how he wants it to go and how he hopes things will be. That takes a lot of trust to have that conversation. What was it like for you guys? What was it like to, be, to watch it?
4: Um, yeah, I, I, well, to watch it, I suppose from the very start, Chris was a realist. Um... And from the very beginning, he tried to find out as much information about his illness as possible. Um, He attempted to speak to me about his future as much as possible, but I suppose I was more in denial. Um, I was very lucky that he had a very close relationship with his parents, Adele and Jodie, and he discussed an awful lot of that with, with Adele. But yeah, he was a realist. He fought till the bitter end. Um, but I think from probably from the very beginning, Chris knew his destiny. He knew that this was going to this was going to take him, um, and he had everything planned. He had everything decided prior to all this. Um, uh, I suppose he did try and discuss it with me on several occasions, to and from hospital trips to Beaumont, but um, he wasn't getting anywhere with me. And I suppose to see him there, yeah, he was very brave. Um, he understood what was going on. It um, shows there. I know his sister spoke about his faith. Um, Chris probably was he was very interested in religion. Anyway, he often spoke about um, becoming <laughs> converting to Judaism. Um, <laughs> but he read an awful lot. <laughs> he he read about every religion to try and understand every, religion and he had great faith. Um, And people probably think that his illness brought that upon him, but it wasn't. He always read about it. He always had, you know, he always believed in God. He wanted to understand as much as possible about it. Um, And I think towards the end, Chris was completely at peace. Um, He was completely relaxed, I think. I remember in November, before he passed away, shortly after that recording, Chris was very agitated and, and unhappy, and he was... Um, irritable, he he was almost unbearable at home and and Flann was unwell the same day and he rang and and he he said he'd still pop out to see him and and Chris's family were there at the time, my own family were there and Flann said I'll I'll jump upstairs there and I'll have a chat with him and he came back down an hour and a half later, he said he's fine, he's fine, he's going to be fine from now on and that was it, he was completely calm. There was no issues, there was no fear of dying, there was no speaking of death, nothing like that. And that's the way Chris was until the day he passed away. So Chris's faith was there all along. Um, it's not the faith that I would have, but it's the faith that he had and it's the faith he believed in, and it helped him towards the last few months of his life. Day to day, if you're a lovely little
3: boy who's gorgeous. Um, the star of the show I think st-
1: absolutely both screen and, and the th-
4: image of his
3: dad he's gorgeous <laughs> um, obviously he gives you hope to get up in the morning and keep going and moving you know, forward as much as he can
4: I think he keeps me going number one um, I moved down to Clare back in January um, with my job and everything else um, I suppose I had isolated myself to an extent in Lucan Um, I I have very good friends, a very good family, but shortly after Chris passed away, I decided I have to go back to work, Mm. Um, I needed a routine, he needed a routine, Um, he was five weeks old when Chris got sick, Um, and after that period of time returning to work, it just, things became like Groundhog Day, every day was the same. drop Harry to creche, go to work, come home, collect him at half six. So it's like something has to change here. And Chris and I had discussed before he passed away, our initial intention was to move to Clare and to build our own house and him to get his job down there and and me to go down there. Um, So he had said before he passed away, make sure you go back to Clare and continue with the idea of building the house and and go ahead with all those plans. Um, Harry's every bar of Chris. He's, he's the same bravery, he's the same... He loves to be the centre of attention, he's loud, he's brash. <laughs> um, that's the way he's going to be. And he's never seen Chris like that, so it goes back to nature and nurture again. Uh, but going back to January, yeah, I decided right, it's time to move down to Clare. I need more for him and more for myself as well. And even though I had the support in Dublin... Um, both Chris's parents are still working um, and, and Ringsend is a long way away at 6 o'clock in the evening if you're stuck in work mm-hmm. and you need a child minder within 10 minutes away um, but Harry's every bar and brack of, of his dad um, and it's great to have it because uh, I remember meeting a guy in work there during the week and he said Chris is going to be forever alive once you have that fella because he's every bit of him and he is every bit of him yeah, he's into his music. He's into his dance and and uh, yeah, it's great to have him. And he's a great he's a reminder of Chris every day.
2: It's um, so interesting. You mentioned Chris's job just there for a second, and on all of this, you know, it's about life, mm. and that doesn't come into it really at all. It's all about the people, and his child, and you know, it's all about the relationships and the laughter and the moments. I think that's actually such an interesting thing because we are in our day to day on these things that seem important, and then. Something like this happens and you look back and it's all, is that doesn't come into it. Um, so if anybody has any questions at all, um, feel free to ask them. Or if anyone wants to share anything, feel free. I just wonder, um, do you think that uh,
0: Christopher Gitter got all the chances in his life that he deserved because uh, he was very outgoing and uh, I think he possessed many talents
1: You've heard the interview, so you know what he said in the interview. He said, I said, what regrets did you have? Like, he, he did regret not getting uh, more study under his belt. So he did a few things and he dropped in and out. And in the interview, which we didn't use for whatever reason, he said, Yeah, I kind of regret not finishing whatever degree. Or he, he had big plans like for business and finance and he was very creative. But And he was going back to study. Right? Maybe mm-hmm. Caroline can give more detail, but yeah. that was his general answer.
4: I don't think he had any regrets. I think. Chris probably lived a fuller life than any other 31-year-old before he passed away. Um, But I do think he had a lot more to offer. I think, um, maybe I'm biased, but I think he was an extremely intelligent guy um, and I don't think he used that to the best of his ability. I think given the opportunity he would have and I suppose when it comes to his, his, his family, um, his biggest regret was not to see his son grown up. Mm. But when it comes to regrets, I think he did an awful lot in his life. I was probably the cradle snatcher here. I was three and a half years uh, <laughs> older than Chris. <laughs> and he had seen and done an awful lot more with his life than I probably had in mine. Um, I don't think he would have changed anything that he did do. Um, But he would have liked to see his son grown up and maybe progress, maybe his college career rather than his his career itself. So when someone close to you loses someone,
3: how can you help them? What's the best thing that you can do? How do you open a conversation with them? Because it's difficult and you don't want to overstep. You don't want to impose but you want to help so maybe that's a question
1: for you guys. Sure
2: Um, I think it was said best actually at one point in the film say their name talk about the person I think the big fear is that if you say their name the person might get upset or if you talk about them actually I think anyone who's ever lost anyone it's like it heals it's like a really healing thing to hear someone talk about them and laugh about them and share a story about them um In the podcast, in terms of people we talk to, that seems to be the most common theme, is that people are afraid of grief, they're afraid of death, they're afraid of talking about loss, but the minute you say their their child's name, their partner's name, their parent's name, like they just light up. Um, It's the opposite of the sadness, I think.
3: I think listening
2: as well is a big thing,
3: just to sit there and listen, and you don't need to talk, you don't need to say anything, let the other person ramble on as much as they want um, but I think just taking the time to sit and listen to somebody who's lost some, somebody
2: is a huge, a huge thing and a massive help. Thank you guys so much so much for, for joining us and for making the film it's, uh, it's wonderful thanks,
1: thanks for having us
4: um, Um, just on, on behalf of myself and the Byrne family, I want to thank Lorcan, and he's very tightly knit crew and everyone that got involved in the documentary. Um, I think it's a great tribute to Chris. I know how much time and effort and money you put into it, and you took a year out. Um, and I just want to say thank you very much, and it's very much appreciated.
1: Thank you, Caroline.